Welcome to the Generations Church Podcast. This is Brian Nugent, and I'm the pastor at Generations Church. Thanks for listening today. We hope this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. This morning, I'm going to do some scripture reading, so Matthew, Philippians, 2 Timothy, and Luke. So just get ready. I'm coming, I'm coming there in a moment. So I'm, if you're new, I'm doing a series called Ask It, answering questions about the Bible, life, and faith. So I let the congregation submit questions that they have, and I do my best to answer them, and they put me on the spot. This is the series that makes me sweat and makes me work. Uh, You can ask questions about the Bible, its origin, doctrines, and practices. You can ask questions about our faith, discipleships, problems that you may have, uh, questions about church or relationships. You can ask, ask questions about culture, trends, politics, issues of social justice, and how they interact with faith. So Jesus got some of his greatest messages from questions that people ask. So I feel like there is value. Also, we live very close to Florida State, Florida A&M University, and I get a number of questions from younger people, uh, maybe who are new to faith. So this gives me that platform to kind of answer some of those questions to our younger uh, younger people. Uh, Sometimes I don't have like a biblical answer. I just give you a biblical opinion on on a question. So I always kind of let you know that. Also, this is not exhaustive thinking. I try to answer as many questions as I can. So I have about 30 questions that have been submitted for this particular series. Hey, and in the past, I've answered all kinds of questions. All right, UFOs, astrology, universe, multiverse, uh, where did Cain get his wife? And, you know, uh, why is there so much violence in the Old Testament? So there's all kinds of questions. So it, I try to answer as many as possible so it's not exhaustive thinking on every question, but just trying to answer the question with the time that I'm given. Also, uh, you can submit a question. There's a card in front of you. Uh, you can do it anonymously. There's a Dropbox in the foyer. You can email me, which most people do, or a lot of people do. And even when I know who you are, I don't use your name in the question. So just want to uh, just want to mention that as well. So in the previous weeks of this series, and if you've missed it, you can. Catch it on our YouTube channel, Facebook page, uh, our iTunes podcast. So in the previous weeks, I've tried to answer the questions. We read a lot in the Bible about concubines and multiple wives. What is with that? Had a little fun with that, but that was a question. What about people who have died and returned to life and had visions of heaven? Is that real? Why pray? Does praying for something really affect the outcome? For example, can prayer really change something like someone's earthly healing or not? Really good question about the role of faith and prayer with God's sovereign will for our lives. So it's a really good question there. Last week, what is your viewpoint on using medical marijuana and CBD products? Pastor Brian, I am same-sex attracted. What should I do? Why do I have trials that seem to come one after another? And how is it that you can commit horrible sins, killing and raping, and yet still ask for forgiveness before you die and go to heaven? And we looked at what is a 
horrible, like what's a horrible sin? What qualifies a horrible sin? So that's, that's where we've been so far. So if you've missed something, you can catch it up. So let's start this morning. I got four questions. I'm going to try to get through them the best I can. Question number one, is it a sin or wrong to have a prenuptial agreement? All right. All right. That was an interesting card. I've done DNA analysis trying to figure out who sent this in. I think it was Gavin Bush. That's what I think. So, because uh, he's loaded. He's loaded. So, all right. Is it a sin or wrong to have a prenuptial agreement? So, just for clarification, a prenuptial agreement, what is a prenuptial agreement? It is a contract between two people that is created before they get married. It typically outlines how the division of assets will be handled should the couple divorce later on. Okay? So, before I married Becky, I considered a prenuptial agreement due to my net worth as a youth pastor, okay? <laughs> I just thought, you know, I don't want her marrying me for my wealth, so do we need to have a conversation about that? I decided not to do that. So at our wedding, when she said, I do, she felt the full force of my net worth hit her account immediately, all $642 of my youth pastor's net worth, okay? So is it wrong or sinful to have a prenuptial agreement? Okay, so I told you I'm going to give you like my best biblical opinion and thinking this would be one of those. In my opinion... Having a prenuptial agreement is not sinful or necessarily wrong, okay? So that was the question. Is it a sin? Is it wrong? And to my best estimation, no, it is not sinful or wrong. I am sure that it's possible to have a uh, happy marriage if people have one. I'm sure there are kind of exceptions to this. So to answer the questions, it's not necessarily sinful or wrong. My concern about that would be that a prenuptial agreement could influence your thinking toward divorce during a tough season of marriage because you've already discussed kind of in, in some scenario what the end would look like. So I, I, I think, you know, it might, it might make it easier to leave because you've already had the discussions about the financial division of financial assets if this should occur. These discussions also happen as you are talking about marriage and you're building, you know, theoretically the framework of your marriage. And as you're doing that, you are construct constructing an exit door as well. So to me, even though it's not sinful or wrong, it could work, you know, uh, work on the marriage, you know, uh, not in a healthy way. All right, 63% said they would feel intimidated or at higher risk for divorce if their partner asked them to sign a prenuptial agreement. So to someone, you know, in that marriage, they would be going, huh, we're having this discussion I wonder what they're thinking. So I told you, I don't think it's sinful or morally wrong, but I do think it can lay in the hearts of people, especially if you're the broke one coming into marriage. You know, like, hey, what are they thinking? They're already looking, looking down the road on that. So 
So let me, let me just, let me talk to young adults just for a minute, just about marriage since we've kind of raised this question. So young adults, high school students, so I want to say to you, do not get your concept of marriage from TikTok, Instagram, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette, and I trust you in the area of relationships, you will never be able to keep up with the Kardashians. I promise you that. Okay? Don't get your concept of marriage from there. When you think about the framework of marriage, you let the Bible be your voice on what marriage is. Marriage is a holy and sacred union created by God for one man and one woman for a lifetime. All of the adults say amen. All right? Matthew says it in Matthew 19, it says, What God has joined, let no one separate. There is something spiritual, there is something mystical that occurs when two people stand before each other in the presence of God. God does something that only He can do as He knits the hearts of people, young people together. And I want to say to you, as you are thinking about marriage, praying about marriage, considering it one day, all right, when you commit to someone, you need to commit all the way with no reservations. All right? All right. So anytime I do premarital counseling, part of my, my, my counseling is, especially at the end, I take the vows and I make them read them and we talk about them and we're going to put them up on the screen because when we commit to marriage, we commit with no reservations and there is not going to be a more weighted statement that you will ever make towards your future spouse than this, to have and to hold from this day forward. For better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, I promise to love and cherish until death do we part. Okay? There's no equivocation to that. It is, it is a commitment that says, I don't know what's happening in the future. I can't predict that, but I'm telling you, whatever happens, I'm going to be there. Okay? Now, the, the question, again, I don't think it's sinful or immoral. I think in some way it could plant a seed of doubt and provide a, a pathway, you know, quicker to, uh, to exiting the marriage. But I, I, but I will say, too, I, don't, I, I guess there are exceptions and exclusions to that. But I want to say to you and to our young adults, I mean, when you, when you get married, you go by God's formula, one man, one woman, with God in the center of it for a lifetime. Okay? All right. Question number two. Question number two. Why is the virgin birth critical to the Christian faith? Why is the virgin birth cons uh, critical to the Christian faith? Now, I want to say in this series, I get very few doctrinal questions. More of them have to do with culture and trends, those kind of things. And that's fine. I, I answer them. So I don't get a lot of doctrinal questions. But I do think, I do think this is an important question. So why is the virgin birth critical to the Christian faith? So... When we consider the work and the person of Jesus, there are five non-negotiables, okay? Five non-negotiables. If you are in GC Youth, I'm going to quiz you on these five after it's over with. 
and teenagers as well. Let me just mention that, okay? All right? So here are the five non-negotiables when it comes to the work and person of Jesus. Number one, his virgin birth, okay? I'll talk about it in a minute. Number two, his sinless life. Number three, his miracles, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good, healing all that went under the power of the devil because God was with him. Let me go back. I want to read the passage about his sinless life. Okay, let me just back up for a minute. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we yet was without sin. So sinless life, miracles. Another non-negotiable, his substitutionary death upon the cross. His substitutionary death upon the cross. So I am going, you know, he took our place on the cross. So I'm going to read Isaiah 53, uh, 4 and 5. And I want you to pay attention to the word our, O-U-R. Because it, it, it speaks of this substitutionary death. But I want you to catch the whole as well. Surely he took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Okay, that's the foundational, you know, scripture when it comes to the substitutionary death. He took our place on the cross. It's a non-negotiable when it comes to Jesus and his resurrection. Paul says it this way, all right? If Christ has not been raised then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says this is a non-negotiable here. So why is the virgin birth critical to the Christian faith? Now, there are all kinds of secular criticisms, people that make blasphemous, you know, thinking, and they do it in movies and Broadway plays about the, you know, about the, the virgin birth, Episcopalian theologian John Spong that you would think would be sympathetic. He calls it the entrance myth, the entrance myth. So why is it critical to the Christian faith? Number one, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that it would be this way. Isaiah 7, 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will birth a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, I don't know exactly how this transcription moment worked when God took a human being and influenced his mind and words and hand with the with the power of the Holy Spirit to write this so but you got to think when Isaiah wrote the virgin will be with child he went whoa now that's a big one that's a big one <laughs> I'm, I hope that one's covered. You know, I, I probably gave him pause. So it's prophesied in the Old Testament that it would be this way. How did it happen? The, Mary asked the angel. The angel said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that word overshadow is just, it's kind of the same word that they used when the Holy Spirit came upon the temple at the, at the dedication or it came upon 
the tabernacle when, when Moses, you know, Moses prayed. So it's kind of the same word and thought. So let's take a look just a little deeper in the virgin birth and the incarnation. Philippians 2 gives us a little snapshot of description, kind of unpacks this for us just a little bit. Philippians 2 and verse 6 says, Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, kind of think through this, did not consider equality with God something to be used of his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to the cross. So this brings a little understanding to this. So this passage says that Jesus, when he came to earth, he voluntarily laid down his divinity. He voluntarily laid it down, which is his omnipotence. The fact that he is all-powerful, he gave it up. His omniscience, the, pow the, the power that he could know anything at any time. He was all-knowing. He gave that up. His omnipresence, the, the power or his ability to be everywhere at once. He gave that up. Now he is operating as you and I with little power, limited knowledge, confined to a human body. He takes on the form of a human being. Now, since he did that, he subjects himself to physical pain, human emotion, joy and sorrow, hunger, exhaustion. He's walking just like you and I. That's why there is significance when we read about Jesus being filled with the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He needed the power and the working of the Holy Spirit in this new setup that he had just like you and I needed it back then. That's why his prayer life was was important. He gave up his omnipotence. Now he had to pray and seek God for, for power and for direction. So that's why his prayer life is important. That's why when you read about Jesus at the Mount of Temptation, he understood what it's like to be at your weakest moment and have the temptation of the enemy at his feet and, and he overcame that. So that's why those things are important. He voluntarily, voluntarily laid down his divinity and he took up upon himself humanity. All right? So if the virgin birth is not true, if it's not true, what if, what if Jesus is all man, just the biological product of Mary and Joseph? Because that would be one Thing. There's one of two things that would happen if the incarnation or the virgin birth is not true. He is all man. He's the biological product of Mary and Joseph. So this incarnation, it cannot, you know, it's, it's not a purely biological kind of thing. There is a mystery and a miracle that goes with this. It had nothing to do with sexuality in any way, but Mary found herself, you know, she, uh, pregnant 
She had a normal nine-month gestation and delivery just like you would know. Now, let me say this. If Jesus was all man, the, pro the biological product of Mary and Joseph, then the cross itself was a benevolent but misguided act. And everything we know about Jesus is fabricated and we are still in our sins. If that's the case... There's a lot of trouble for you and I. It was, it was kind, but it was a misguided act. What if he, Jesus, is all God? Let's go, go to the other side. Was he all man? Let's look. If he is, what if he is all God, just appearing kind of in an angelic-like form? Okay? Then his sinless life doesn't mean anything. Because the fix was in. He's not laying down his divine powers. He's, not, he's still walking with his full divinity so his sinless life there's no real temptation to him his miracles they we can't relate with those because he he kept his omnipotence you know his suffering on the cross what exactly does that mean what does it mean when we read and in the passage that I read we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses we say that because he walked in human form but if he's not in human form if he's all God then then that that passage doesn't really ring true because he has no human capacity to understand you know uh, the, the emotional weaknesses and sufferings of human beings RT Kendall frames it this way when it comes to the virgin birth. He said, the virgin birth of Christ shows that salvation can never come through human effort. God did it all without our help. All we can do is receive his amazing love and forgiveness. So this is a God thing. It is a mystery, you know, that divinity was merged with humanity. We see the person of Jesus fully God, yet fully man. So to answer this question, the virgin birth is not just a fascinating story in the life of Jesus, but is a cornerstone to our faith. Very important to, to our faith. So, all right. Next question. How can we trust a book, the Bible, Passed down for thousands of years, knowing that things in it will be changed. Now, I get this question in some form every time I do this series, okay? And so we always have people that are new. I've got younger people here. So I want to, very quickly, I want to answer this. I did a series called Deconstruction. On October the 16th, I answered this question in great detail. It was a series that I answered, is God real? Is the Bible real and dependable for today? Did Jesus really live? I walked you through kind of what that, that transcription process looks like. And I'll only give you like 30 seconds on it, okay? What we know about the Bible and what we know about ancient history, they all stand upon the same historical records of oral tradition and transcriptionist, you know, throughout the years. So it's a, to me, it's an illogical argument for you to uh, assume that the Bible would be different, but that you accept ancient history as fact, Okay, so to me, they both rest upon the same, you know, historical, you know, kind of framework. So to me, 
either you've got to believe both or disbelieve both, but to have you know, disbelief in the Bible because of this system and then accept ancient history. To me, there's a, uh, there's an, 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 a logic issue. So I, I walk through that question. So if, if you are interested in that, you're a younger person, YouTube, Facebook, iTunes, I go through that whole, that whole thing. And if you have any questions about that, feel free to email me or come see me. All right. All right. Another question. What if I don't believe everything in the Bible? What if I don't believe everything in the Bible? A really good question, and it is a common question, especially in, in thinking in young millennials today. What if I don't believe everything in the Bible? So let me just kind of tell you what we believe about the Bible, and then I'll, I'll, walk through, I'll walk through that answer. So here is our belief for our church, and it's through the Assemblies of God as well. The Scriptures... Both the Old and New Testaments are verbally inspired of God and are the revelation of God to man, the infallible, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. Okay, that is, our, that is our belief, that they are inspired of God. They are the revelation of God. They are infallible uh, and the authoritative rule of faith and conduct. The scripture, 2 Timothy, and I could, this is one of those, I could spend a lot of time on this. I'm just grabbing one here. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the beginning of that, the scripture is God-breathed. It's his very essence you know on those pages to us if you want to the, the the pages of scripture are the the revealing of God's heart and his purpose and his character uh, and his will so we believe you know through the scripture that there is there's spiritual application that you can learn what we just just read we also believe that the bible even written a long time ago is very practical for today, there's practical, you know, practical things that we can learn even today. Like the book of Proverbs says that it's better to live on the roof than to share a house with a nagging woman. Very practical for the day that we live today. To half the gender that is here. So we believe the scripture. I'm going to give you a theological term. It's called the closed canon. Okay. From the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, when that last period was put on the last sentence of Revelation, what God had spoke to humanity is closed. It's done. There's no more new revelation. There's nothing else that is being spoken into that that we would accept today. It is closed canon. It is done. It is completed. Now, by saying that as well, I also go, it is a completed work. It is a finished work. It is not open to edits or cultural modifications at all. It is closed. It is complete. There's nothing new, but it's also complete and it's whole, you know, from Genesis to Revelation. So I want to go back to this question. What if I don't believe everything in the Bible? What if I don't believe everything in the Bible? So I read the question, and I think it's a really good question. That's why I brought it to you guys this morning. So if you don't believe everything in the Bible, then let me ask you, how does this work in your mind? So, do you believe that there are some things in the Bible that are good and some things in the Bible that are bad? There are some things that are inspired of God, but yet there's some things that you don't think 
are inspired of God. So I guess my question is, you know, how do you approach this? Like to me, it's hard logically to, to wrap my mind around that question. I don't believe everything that's in the Bible. So you're indicating there are some things that I believe. But there's some things that I don't. So I'm trying to wrap my head around the understanding of that question. So someone would go, hey, I don't believe in Jonah and the whale. But I do believe that God hears and answers prayer. I don't believe in the Red Sea and Moses and the Hebrews. I don't believe in that. But I do believe that God can forgive sins. I don't believe in Genesis 2 framework of marriage. But I do believe in Jesus' admonition and I try to live out concerning the poor and the misfortunate. So I'm, I, I'm trying to understand, you know, the logic of believing some parts of the Bible, but not believing others. So to me, there is a concern that if you stop, start removing things from the Bible that you don't like or agree with, where does it stop? Where does it stop? If everyone can self-edit the, the word of God due to our own likes and dislikes, what does this leave us with? All right. Now, normally this, this type of question is asked because of two concerns. Like when I have these discussions normally, and it, it may be much broader than this, but normally this is the framework that, that I get these questions. All right. This type of question is, is asked usually because of two concerns. Number one, a disbelief in miracles. A disbelief in miracles. Our founding father, Thomas Jefferson, had this issue. He would read the Bible, but he didn't believe in miracles. So he took a razor blade and he cut out of the Bible every reference to the miraculous. We have a picture of that that we're going to put. That is the Jefferson Bible, and it is in the Smithsonian Institute. It's his Bible, and you can see he removed references that he felt like were, you know, dealt with miraculous. He's just cutting and pasting, okay? So I would say to you, that's a danger because all the Bible hangs on a miracle. All the Bible hangs on the miraculous. So someone may ask me, do you believe in Jonah and the well. And I would go, yes, I do, and let me tell you why. If I believe that God said to the cosmos, be in order, the planets line up, the human body come alive and have breath in it with the power of his word, then to me, he doesn't have to work very hard to come up with a fish that can sustain a man for three days and throw him up on the beach. All right? It's not a hard jump for me, okay? I don't. Because I said all the Bible hangs upon the miraculous. We talked about it even in the, the virgin birth this morning. So one is the disbelief in miracles. The other reason this type of question is asked is because the teachings of the Bible when it comes to sex and gender. Okay, we see this commonly now. And I also want to say I did a series called Deconstruction on December the 3rd of this year. 
I dealt with every aspect of same-sex relationships, LGBTQ, uh, 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 transgender, the, the, whole, the whole thing. If you want to get some, and that's all on our YouTube channels, all of that, if you want to kind of hear more fullness. But that question usually comes because of the teachings of the Bible when it comes to sex and gender. So now we can self-edit. We can take out what we don't like. And if we can take out stuff, I mean, why can't we add stuff? You know, if, I mean, if we're taking something out, we've got to be adding something in, in some way. So now, instead of taking God's word as objective truth to our society, we have now made it a slave to our own subjective opinions and values. Now, knowing what is right or wrong is a matter of personal choice or situation. If this is what is happening, then the Bible itself becomes a construct of our own making, making, and everyone creating their own religion. Okay? Can you see where this is headed? Moral and spiritual chaos. The Bible, God's spoken word, provides us with absolute truth, absolute moral truth that have tested, stood the test of time, and they are for all people in all situations without exception. All right? So to me, so to me, the question goes back to the writer to wrestle logically and intellectually with the premise of the question that some parts of the Bible are inspired, some aren't. You believe some things and you don't believe other things. So to me, you have to, to wrestle kind of to me respectfully with that illogical kind of belief. And if you wrote the question, I, if I answered a little hostile, I, I, don't, I don't mean that personally. You're more than welcome to message me. I'd love to kind of talk and maybe get some greater understanding on that, on that particular question. Okay? Believing and disbelieving parts of the Bible, just closing to this question. Believing and disbelieving parts of the Bible will certainly cause more confusion than clarity and lead to a misrepresentation of God's intended purpose. Okay? So we believe from Genesis to Revelation... Things that we like, things that we don't like. Things that we wish were different, you know, in our own life, in practical application. We accept it as whole. We, we believe it and live it out the best that we can. Okay? Last question. I'll be glad when this day's over with. Let me just tell you that. All right? All right. All right. I, I want to go back to the prenuptial agreement. That was easy. You know, that was easy. All right. Last one. Why don't we see miracles today like in the Bible? Why don't we see miracles today like in the Bible? So the premise of the question, as you can see, is that we're not maybe seeing not the number of miracles or the kinds of big miracles today than they saw in the Scriptures. So I'm not going to agree and go that is a truthful statement, but I'm going to adopt the premise that it's true just as I answer that. So just, just follow me here. So if there is truth to this question, 
I want to kind of give some answer to this. Then let's consider that miracles were used to introduce God and the people of the Old Testament age and Jesus and the gospel to the people of the New Testament age. So at the time, especially in the Old Testament, there's no written record of God. There's no churches. There's no podcasts. There's nothing. Even in the gospels, as Jesus was kind of introducing himself. So I'm saying to you that miracles were were used to meet needs, number one, but they were also also used to introduce God, the concept of God to these kind of pagan Canaanites, you know, that were living in the Old Testament age and to the Jewish and Gentile that had no idea about Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. So I'm going, yes, it was used to meet need, but there was also a quality that it was used to introduce like Jesus and the gospel to the peoples of that age. So let me show me, let me show you these passages. Exodus 6, this is what God says to Moses. He says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of just judgment. I will take you as my own, and I will be you God, your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So he's saying to you, he's saying to them, I'm going to do some things in your midst, but I'm going to do them because I'm introducing myself. I want you to know who I am and what, what I'm about. So he's using miracles as a way to introduce himself. Let's pull this into the New Testament as well. John chapter 2, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He says, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Okay, so he's using these miracles and people are coming to faith in Christ because of the miraculous things that Jesus is doing. So just working the question, I didn't say that I believe it is true, but I'm just just positing that as I'm walking through this question. So if 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 there was an introductory quality you know, to this. And that question was, is, are miracles kind of declining? So I'm saying if there was an introductory quality to miracles, as the gospel becomes more common, maybe we don't need it as much as an aspect of introduction. For instance, for my example, there is the written word of God that is available today that wasn't needed to then. There are hundreds of thousands of churches that they didn't have back then that are making the proclamation of the gospel. There are millions and maybe a billion believers who are giving testimony to the work of Jesus. So I'm just saying if that question is true, maybe then maybe that could be an answer. It's not as reliant on the introductory quality as maybe in the past. So, all right, then there's another part. If there's truth to this question, then let's consider that due to the numerous mention of miracles in the Gospels, it can seem like there's a drastic decline in miracles today. I want to remind you when you read about Jesus, it's a highlight book, okay? I mean, every day is full of miracles, okay? Now listen to me. There were 1,277 days of public ministry for Jesus, but the Gospels only record 25 to maybe 40 days of his life, you know, two, three, four, five percent of his life, okay, that, that the Gospels record. So you can read that and you see multiple miracles every day. Then you look at your own life and you go, man, I'm just terrible. I am an awful believer. There is nothing happening in my life just because of the nature of the way the Gospels is written. Because there's not written like a normal day in the life of Jesus. So let's just say 
Uh, Luke chapter 8, one day, and it's just written this way. Jesus and his disciples slept late. They did laundry. They ate lunch. They fished for a little while. Then they took a nap. All right? Now, first of all, we would all love that, right? Because that would be Jesus' roadmap for you and I. We'd be using that as, as Jesus, what would Jesus do? That's what Jesus would do. All right? But, but the gospel doesn't have those kinds of things, even, we, even though we know that those things exist, exist. So sometimes you can read the Bible because it's filled with teachings and miraculous things, and you can look at your own life and go, man, I'm terrible. So I'm just saying, you know, if there is truth about the declining, you know, of, of miracles, you know, maybe it's kind of somehow how the gospel is, is packaged, okay? So... I don't say that that is true. My answers, you know, I'm not assuming that that's true, but I'm trying to work with a truth premise from that question. So let, let, me, let me move, let me, let me say this. So if that question is true, if it is, I don't know that it is. If it is, what about miracles today? What about miracles today? You know, we don't believe as the cessationist that miracles are part of a bygone era, okay? We believe that miracles are still here for today. We don't believe that they passed away with a generation or, or anything. We still believe the promises, you know, the, the declarations, the decrees, the encouragement to have faith and believe that God can still work a miracle in 2023. We still think those promises are for today. Now, I want to say to you, we need the miraculous in the local church. If there was a quality of introduction in the past, then I say we still need that today because there are many people across the world who've never heard the name of Jesus. We've got people even in Tallahassee who have not had an adequate witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm saying to you, we need miracles as much today to help introduce God's plan and purpose and message as much as they've ever needed him in the scriptures. Now, the, the scripture uses the term sign and wonder. I use the term, the question, use the term miracle. Uh, uh, we, we use the term sign and wonder. So a sign is not the destination itself, but it points to something else. The sign is not the destination itself, so it points to something else. A wonder is something that happens that's so unusual that would make people ask a question, bigger questions. It kind of blows up their intellectual framework where they've got to ask some bigger questions about God, his power, those kinds of things. So the signs and wonders to me are still needed today because the sign of a miracle, listen to me, it's not so that we can pat ourselves on the back and put it on our website. The, the sign today, the miraculous thing today, points back to the cross of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the power of the transformed life that comes through the power of Jesus. So we need signs that that point back to the cross. We need wonders in the midst of a deconstructing age of young adults that, I, as I 
said, blow apart this anti-science, intellectually formed thinking when it comes to God. We need wonders to blow that apart so that they will go, hey man, there's some other questions that I need to ask. There's some other reading. There's some other thinking. There's other conversations that I need to have about God. Now Jesus said this as well. John 14 He says, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing. And they will do greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So, if the premise of the question is, excuse me, that miracles are declining, I say to you, and I stand upon Jesus' words today, not necessarily. Not yet. Jesus said, keep standing, believing that because I'm praying for you in my ascended position, you are going going to see greater things done in your midst. The miracles are a great accelerator for evangelism. The miracles meet need, but they also they also introduce as well Brent and the worship team come. I want to say too, I think it's important that miracles are in the church and signs and wonders because we see in the last days it's going to be filled with all kinds of unusual kind of demonic satanic activity. Jesus said in Matthew 24, in the last days there's going to be false messiahs. They're going to appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So, He's, and even in Paul in 1 Thessalonians talks about the lying signs and wonders that will come in the age that we live. So I want to just say to you, kind of in response to that question, I do not think God is going to sit on his hands and he's, I believe he's going to use his power to meet needs in people's lives today, but also point people as well to the powerful life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. He's not just going to sit by and go, oh, well, oh, well. He said, hey, you're going to see my hand. You're going to see my hand. I'm just, I'm not a lifeless idol. I am not deaf to your cry. I still respond to faith and people that press through and believe me that I can do the miraculous in their life. So, so I want to say to you, regardless of whether you think there is some truth to the question or not, we need to see the miracles in the church today, all right? We still need to pray and believe and contend that God is going to do the miraculous even in the moment that we live, and it's going to meet needs, but it's also going to be a sign and a wonder of the power and glory of God in our midst. Amen. 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 So we're going to close the service. Worship team's going to come. We're going to sing a song. And then I'm going to call for those of you who need a miracle in your life. All right? Because I'm not one that thinks God has expended his, you know, number of miracles that he had, you know, in the Bible. I think he's just as powerful today 
as when he spoke the worlds into order at the beginning of creation. I do. I do. And some of you, you need a miracle in your life. There's something, things in your life that you can't do. If you would have already done it, made it happen, you would have already done it. There are some things that you need to go, Lord, this is yours, and I need your miraculous hand, okay? And we're going to believe that. We don't serve a lifeless idol. He hasn't given out all of his power and miracles. He's still the same God that, that works today. And we're going to believe in that power and that presence. And we're going to pray in whatever miracle that you need today. Maybe you need a miracle of healing in your body. Okay? You saw that passage. By his stripes, we are healed. That substitution that we transferred sin upon Jesus actually worked to our benefit with grace and healing. If you need a miracle, whatever it may be, maybe you've got a need in your own life, spiritual life. Maybe you're just like, man, my, I've, I've got some things I need to turn over to God. The greatest miracle he does is not a healing part of the physical body, but it is the transformation of the heart. He does all kinds of of miracles, okay? So would you stand this morning? Would you stand? And I want you to sing with the worship team this morning. But I'm going to open these altars today. And if you need a miracle, you want someone to come pray with you, whatever it is, whatever it is, we believe greater things. That's what he said. He said, you're going to do the same thing, but also you're going to do greater things because I I'm going to be praying for you. So we're going to stand in the moment of greater things this morning. Sing. And if you want prayer this morning, I want you to come. We're going to pray and believe God's going to do some miraculous things. And we've seen it in the last couple of months. We've seen God heal bodies, restore lives, deliver. We've seen it. Worship team, let's sing this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. I've seen miracles in my mind. Would you come? If you need a miracle this morning, if you need a miracle this morning, I want you to come. Whatever it is, if you need a miracle this morning, I want you to come. Whatever it is, I want you to come. If you need a miracle this morning, I want you to come. If you need a miracle this morning, I want you to come. Miracle of the heart, finances. If you need a healing in your body, I want you to come. I want you to come. I want you to come. I want you to stand. I want you to believe. I want you to contend. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I can resurrect a man with my own hands. I want you to come. Just the mention of your name can raise. What you said, need a miracle in my life. So all the glory to the only one who cares. Oh, Jesus, it's
on, declare it this morning. Declare it this morning. the building this morning Lord we come and we stand upon your word Lord your word says that we have heard of your fame and we stand in awe of your deeds repeat them in our day in our time make them known Lord we serve of God of miracles and we ask you today to fall upon us, move upon us, and fill us. You are the God that heals. You are the God that restores. You are the God that gives beauty for ashes. Lord, we have sensed your power and your glory. And we lift our hands to you in prayer and worship. You have ministered with signs and wonders and miracles. And we pray 
And we ask that those miracles manifest today. Just as you brought, Lord, the, the Hebrews out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with a strong hand, we ask you to manifest your healing power today. Lord, you did miracles during your ministry, but you said that we would do greater works, that because you were praying and you would send the Holy Spirit, so we confess as the body of Christ that we move to those greater things today. God, we pray for the sick. We pray for financial healing, Lord. We pray for creative miracles, Lord. We pray for the sick in our congregation. Be made whole. Lord, we declare and decree the goodness of God. And Lord, all miracles, Lord, they are tied to the cross of Jesus this morning. Lord, any miraculous work, Lord, we thank you for the cross and, and the, the work that you've done by your stripes we are healed. And we pray over that today. And we stand and we believe that you're a God of miracles. We do that this morning. We do that this morning with faith, anticipation, and expectation that you are the God of miracles. We declare it this morning. Brent, sing that again. Sing it again. Yes, I believe you're the one to work in God. You're the one to work in God. All the miracles I see, you're too good to not believe. You are. You're the one to work in God. And you give All the miracles we see, you're too good to Stop working! 
Come on, proclaim. He's the way maker in this place. The way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, lying in the darkness, my God, that is who you are. You're the way maker, Lord. The way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, lying in the darkness, my God. Give him praise across the building this morning. Across the building. So listen to me. And it's just not from this message. It's things I've said here before. We keep praying, believing, confessing, contending, decreeing that there's a miracle coming our way. We don't give up. We don't get discouraged. We, we don't. We keep calling out to the name of the Lord. And we're going to do that, okay? God's word doesn't change. Jesus said, you know, there's a possibility that there's going to be greater things that are happening. If we'll step into that, if we'll step into that, we're going to believe greater things, greater things. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, I'm going to be down here at the front. First of all, if you have any questions about the message, 
You want to follow up, my email address is brian at gctlh.org. You can send me an email, a question if you agree, disagree, whatever. I, nobody reads that on my team but me, and I promise you that I will respond. I always respond to those kind of questions. But I'm going to be down here at the front. If I can pray with you, talk with you, if you're new, I'd love the opportunity to get a chance to meet you. That would be great. If you have a moment, and Becky, if you'll take uh, Dr. Ehler uh, to, the, to their table this morning. If you've got a moment, especially sophomore, junior, senior, or maybe God is speaking to you in some way that you might think some further education from Southeastern's in your future, please stop and say hello to them at the table. I think it's an important, important moment. But we're glad that you came to the house of the Lord today. We serve a miracle working God. And we're going to stand and believe until Jesus calls us out of here. Jesus meets needs, but he also uses the miraculous as a way to make him famous and get his message out. And if we've ever needed that, we need it now. We need it now. Can we give him praise one more time? Lord, we love you. We love you. We thank you for the goodness of God. And we just declare your power and glory upon this house. Lord, as we release today, God, we pray that you would put us in contact with, me, with people that need to hear the message of the hope of Jesus. Lord, we're not gathering as the church this morning. We're releasing as the church. And the power and the anointing and salt and light use us this week for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming online. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. You're dismissed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Generations Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message today and pray God's greatest blessings on you. For more information about Generations Church and its ministries, check out our webpage at gctlh.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter.